This is the Design Goggles podcast on BNV Radio. Checking out architecture and design is a pretty good way to keep track of how the world changes. Designers have a unique way of looking at cities, and Seattle is a city that's changing fast. More people are moving here every day, and understanding what's different and what's next has never been more important. So, put on your design goggles and join us in checking out the view. I'm Charles. I'm a designer here at Borden Vellum. I live in the Central District neighborhood, and I've been a Seattleite for two years. And I'm Rachel. I'm a designer here at Borden Vellum. I live in the Old Ballard neighborhood, and I grew up here in Seattle. This week's show is titled Seattle Vernacular. Do-it-yourself is more than a catchphrase in the Pacific Northwest. For some, it's a way of life. So much of our built context has its roots in Seattleites using their hands to shape the world around them. This creative spirit of passionate makers and builders creating their own homes sometimes clashes with the rules and regulations of living in an ever-changing city and community. What does that mean for the continuation of this proud Pacific Northwest tradition? Are we at risk for losing this personal connection to our environment? Or will vernacular architecture simply evolve along with the rules of technology surrounding it? To help us answer those questions and more, we are joined by an architect who specializes in treehouse design here in the Seattle area, Daniel Ash. Daniel, thanks for taking the time to sit down and chat with us. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. We always ask all of our guests straight off the bat how long you've been in Seattle and what neighborhood you live in here. I have been in Seattle since February of 2010, and I currently live in Ballard. I've lived there for about five years. Uh, The first time I ever came to Seattle was in 2006. I came as a summer intern for the company I currently work for. And I lived with a in Lake City, which is just north of uh, Laurelhurst, um, with a seven-foot-tall science fiction book hoarder named Dwayne. Wait, wait. Seven-foot-tall person, or were the, was the hoarding stack oh, seven feet he's, tall he's, in the house? He's, he's a seven-foot-tall person. Was that on the Craigslist ad, or was this something you discovered it's, when you got there? It, I swear, it's actually a really bizarre... Um, it was like a classmate of mine who I wasn't even close to. Her stepfather had a cousin who worked with the guy or something like that. Anyway, short story was I could live for like 200 bucks a month uh, with no utilities. And that's actually the first place that I found myself renting a room from when I got to Seattle. So I lived lived there in quotes uh, for eight months or something like that. So I first lived there uh, for a little while, and then I moved to Beacon Hill and got a, a couple of different places down there. And then we moved. Sandy and I moved in together down there, and then we transitioned to Ballard about five years ago or something like that. I almost just wanted to hear more stories about the hoarder. <laughs> That's a very authentic Seattle experience, I gotta say. That's a deep rabbit hole. <laughs> I'm totally transfixed. So uh, whereabouts did you grow up? So I was born in Inglewood, California. I lived there for a couple years and then moved to Torrance, which is also in the Los Angeles area. Most of my very small extended family is all from, been in LA for at least a few generations. Uh, When I was seven, we moved to Houston, Texas. I lived there for about 10 years and then we moved to Mobile, Alabama. I lived there, I did a year and a half of high school there. Then I went to Auburn University, also in Alabama, six years there, a year nonprofit afterwards, then a year professionally, and I've been here since then. So about 10 years total in Alabama also. Pretty eclectic tour you've been on. They're all along I-10 though. So, and they're all hot. So I didn't ski until I was 27 or something like that. Was one of them your favorite or most influential on you? Most influential? Mm-hmm. I don't think I'm qualified to say that. 
uh, or to answer that, I don't really care for Houston. Is there is there any of them that you are nostalgic for? All of them, in some sense. Hmm. Honestly, all of them. I mean, I was romanticizing about going back to Texas just earlier today. So not Houston, but yeah. They've all got their moments, especially Alabama. Alabama's got great moments if you know where to look. You got to look for it, though. Whatever you imagine about the Deep South, whether it's uh, antebellum homes and, you know, women in pastel dresses or if it's like trailer parks with 10 cars in the front yard and a barefoot woman smoking, carrying a baby. Those both exist just like you picture them. And they're just five minutes apart from each other. It's terrific. It's gorgeous sometimes. So all on the same highway, all hot. Seattle's neither of those things. How was it adjusting from the, those myriad of places to Seattle urban culture? As weird as it sounds, I feel like I moved here because I belong here. I feel a lot more at home on the West Coast and I needed more mountains and a cooler climate in my life. So I find it very agreeable. It's very urban, but it's also on the edge of plenty of wilderness. I got tons of mountains around. I can do any outdoor sport you can possibly you know, hope to. And I really love the fact that it's very neighborhood centric in this city. But I know you guys have already discussed that in to length uh, in previous episodes. Well, I don't think there is a limit to how much you can discuss <laughs> the function of neighborhoods in Seattle for sure. I really like it here. Let's Those were there that. no period of adjustment. It was just like you, you touched down and you were just like, ah, no, there's plenty of adjustment. What was the thing that took you longest to adjust to or something that you're still adjusting to? That's a good question. Uh, something that I'm still adjusting to is it's hard to relate sometimes to people who have known their friends since elementary school. I've never had that. Almost nobody in my life who I've known for longer than five years, a, a very small handful I've, I'm still keep in contact with since college, but it's a very small number. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people mentioned that friend groups breaking into leaving behind is a is a big big challenge big hurdle here i don't know i don't know anyone from elementary school anymore I mean, most of my friends now aren't from here i have my closest friends that i still have that are from seattle they don't live in seattle anymore it's funny i was just i was just reading articles published a few days ago about how native seattleites tend to spend most of their time with the people they've known their entire lives yeah. Whenever they come to town, we're, you know, instantly, we're always hanging out. There's sort of a, it's like a Seattle to Portland Pacific. I mean, so they're, none of, they're not far. <laughs> yeah. We just get in the car and drive. So um, when you first became a designer, did you think uh, that you were going to come to be a, a treehouse specialist? Was that even on your radar? It wasn't on my radar, no. Honestly, in middle school, when I decided I wanted to be an architect, I thought I was going to design castles for the rest of my life. <laughs> <laughs> like with parapets and, yeah. oh, wow. I've seen a couple actually around around these parts. How did it all come about? What, me designing tree houses? Yeah. Actually, there's a very specific reason. There's a guy that was a year above me in architecture school named Russ Gibbs. And I I don't know why he did, because him and I didn't he and I didn't speak on a regular basis at all. He was actually, I think, a good couple of notches cooler than me. <laughs> he came into my studio one day and he had this treehouse book with him. And he's like, Hey man, I don't know why, but I saw this at the bookstore and I thought of you, I thought you'd be into it. And this was February or March in 2006. And I was just coming off a couple of pretty good summer internships where I like had a lot of fun. It was, it was really different. They made good stories. And I was just like looking for something a little bit different, but probably in the architecture field mm -hmm. for the upcoming summer. Cause I had just completed, I think, second or third year in architecture school, right? So I needed something that was actually relatable to my degree. So I was like, okay, well, maybe I could check this out. So I cold called a few of them. Pete, my current boss, uh, decided to hire me. 
based on um, after I talked to him on the phone. Yeah. Oh wow, which is really nice of him. A little <laughs> bit, a little bit crazy. He had never had an intern before. He said. <laughs> and did you take but, to it right away? Well, my I had a, a little bit of construction experience, and I was pretty good at software, which they had a need for. Yeah, it seemed like he and I got along really well. We still do. It did kind of work out. And so even though I only stayed up here for the summer, he and I continued to do a little bit of a, had a, have a little bit of a working relationship uh, throughout the rest of my time in college. And then he and I chatted occasionally after I moved up here, even though I didn't want to do tree houses immediately per se, because I didn't know that that's what I wanted to do. You know, I wanted to test out the other waters. So I did big stuff for a little bit. I did residential stuff for a little bit. And then um, I found myself at a place where I was really missing having a relationship with people who were, you know, cutting wood or laying tile or pouring concrete or whatever. Like as a designer, I don't feel like it's I'm capable of creating good spaces without having a relationship with those people. I just don't know how to. I really like it. And it's, it's very agreeable for me. You know, I'm wondering, um, maybe we should clarify for our listeners a little bit about what treehouse tree architecture <laughs> is. I mean, we're not talking like for little children, a little playhouse in the trees, right? Thank you. Yes, that <laughs> should definitely be clarified. So when I say tree houses, we're talking about much larger structures than you probably built as, as a kid. We're talking about exceedingly ornate, elaborate, heavy structures. I think of... Uh, Think of a guest house perched up in the trees. You know, we have structural engineering. We have, you know, 500 square feet. We have, you know, all these reclaimed materials. This We're talking about a big production and expensive to boot. So our clients tend to be, let's say, better off than most. So it's definitely a different crowd in that sense. But at the same time, all of our clients are people who want to spend their time in a tree house. And so that actually is really neat. Because um, they all tend to be like really great people. They all tend to be, you know, fairly naturally oriented. They're all, you know, really easy to work with. It's terrific. It's almost coming, having experienced the other arch- the other side of architecture, it's almost too good to be true. That's amazing. Are the clients really collaborative? Uh, it depends. Yeah, some are, some aren't. Some, some just kind of want you to come up with something and some want to just, you know, play with you. And, and they're both good. You know, it's just kind of um, just like every other aspect of design. It's really you know, working with who the client is and uh, working that process. And, and that, I really like that, uh, that aspect of design too. Like the relationships, not just with the builders, but with the clients are, um, they're what you build your entire uh, concept on. So I, I put a lot of weight on that. So what's the most elaborate treehouse you've, you've worked on? Like how, what kind of square footage are we talking? Does it have, uh, is it conditioned spaces and like, and also, oh, yeah. how many trees? Oh, Do you ever have more than one tree okay. per treehouse? These are these are both really good questions, you guys. So, <laughs> elaborate is a really hard question to answer because there's different definitions of elaborate. I'll give you two different ones. So one on one side of the coin, we did a antebellum style Jeffersonian architecture treehouse in Virginia that was going to be part of this property. It's kind of like a, a honeymoon suite. Um, uh, the property is it's a really big property. They have a lot of weddings and they wanted to build a tree house for like the bride and groom to stay in. So it's like we recreated out of, you know, rough sawn cedar, all these neoclassical details, you know, with all this trim and molding and everything's OG'd. We had a, you know, coffered ceiling. So that was really annoying because that's a lot further than we typically go. And so that was ornate in one sense. In another sense, we just finished uh, three tree houses for Microsoft out in Redmond. And uh, those had, you know, electronic key cards for doors and ADA operation buttons and, you know, all kinds of like 
Wi-Fi and whatever. I don't know what they put in there, but, uh, you know, so that was also ornate. One has an elevator. <laughs> wow. Totally what people think of when they think of vernacular architecture, key cards, elevators. <laughs> yeah, that, that part, you know, in that, in that case, we, um, you know, since you brought it up, um, that particular project was keeping it vernacular was, um, a much higher priority than it usually is for us. Cause mm. it, it often just kind of, um, works itself out just because of the materials we work with, right? It's going to look relatively representative of the, you know, surrounding architecture and culture, right? Uh, wherever we build. But in this case, um, you're building in a, an office campus, right? And so it, we we said at the very beginning, like on our first meeting, I was like, I want to make these tree houses look like they're not part of an office campus, but rather they're part of the forest. And so uh, even though they're surrounded by buildings on three sides, the trees are terrific, like honestly terrific. And um, they had little, you know, clusters of greenery around them. And so we really just kind of wanted to, if we... And we didn't want to date them either. We wanted them to look like they'd been there for a long time. So, you know, when it came to like these electronic systems, we we put a lot of effort into sort of hiding them as, as delicately as possible, like into door jams and into like behind wood paneling and all that stuff. So when you are up there and you're experiencing it, it really does feel like you're not in an electronics environment, especially for like a tech company, right? Mm-hmm. So that was a big, right. that was a big challenge for us. But that must have been a concern up front, right? It was, yeah, because we didn't want these structures to be dated whatsoever. And how do you integrate technology without being datable? That's fascinating. I mean, because even key cards have been around for 40, 50. It's not even that. It's not like it's cutting edge. They're cutting edge over there. Oh, well. <laughs> I was going to say, I was just thinking about like eventually technology will be vernacular. There's a couple science fiction writers that deal with that all the time, where they're writing these futuristic vernacular dwellings where technology is just as pedestrian as nails and wood. That's also a really interesting train of thought. It's funny. So treehouses in particular were seemingly one of the most recognizable forms of vernacular architecture. There's this romantic notion of American kids cobbling together their first private space in the backyards of their houses. You know, sometimes vernacular architecture is born from that moment in this super pure way. There's this curiosity that blooms into a hobby later in life where you aspire to take care of your own place or maybe build your own home. Uh, But vernacular architecture is a lot broader than treehouses, even though a treehouse is the most recognizable, accessible icon for someone. There's low-income families that are that are making do with homes that haven't been updated in decades or more. Even the homeless have a place in this conversation in that there are entire towns and cities uh, constructed from literally the things that they can find in the time that they have. And I, you know, doing my research for our chat, it was hard to put boundaries around what vernacular architecture means to Seattle. Some of the things that come up, oddly enough, were googies, like the the crazy sculptures on top of old retail buildings in South Seattle. Oh, yeah, um, sure. The, the sort of novelty architecture of Seattle was like the crown of Seattle vernacular. But outside of tree houses, how do you see Pacific Northwest vernacular and Seattle vernacular architecture living within it? It's almost like a found object sense of the vernacular, which is it's it's a, you know every kid that builds a treehouse, it's like he's stealing materials from a construction site down the road. Um, you know the people that live uh, south of New Orleans, like in the Mississippi River Bayou, it's all like you know it's the stuff they build with down there. I mean that's vernacular. Those are really you know different, but really classic examples of vernacular building, right? Birds do the exact same thing. I feel like that's almost the root of the entire thing. Like birds always build with very particular materials from their immediate environment and they're consistent throughout a, a given region and they they 
you know, they do a lot to define a given ecosystem or, or whatever, you know, there's, there's lots of really great examples of that. Um, and I actually really like drawing parallels between birdhouses and tree houses because obviously we're both building in the trees and, and we aren't finding our materials, but we try as best as we can in some cases to like, I mean, we do find materials, but like in much broader different sense, like we just found a guy who wanted to sell us a bunch of barnwood out of Ohio or something. I guess we bought a, a truckload of that or something like that. But it, we try to use materials that have some um, relationship to the place that we're building in to sort of enhance that relationship. And I think what I'm getting at is materials more than form, I think, have a, a, um, a bigger impact on vernacular identity than um, some other things. Is there a bar for you when you're putting together a project that you need to get above to qualify as vernacular? And does it is it directly connected to materials? In other words, found material versus non-found. Not in such a well-defined sense. I mean, there's always sometimes we have a bunch of you know material on hand that we're you know that's like from Texas or something like that, and we're about to build a treehouse in Maine or something and like that. Material has no relationship to what we're going to do, so we have to sort of rethink how we're going to use things or you know where we can get things that might have a strong relationship or well so what about the relationship between opportunism and vernacular so if we're going to talk about literal birds making nests and trees a lot of birds will actually make that nest from whatever they find right so they find it in the within a, some particular vicinity of where they're going to build their nest but if somebody else deposited it it might be some crazy weird foreign material that might be trash it might be maybe it's yarn that uh, was originally you know maybe it's silk thread that was silk from silk moths in yeah. asia but then it came over here and then it deteriorated i mean i like how do you define that difference between this material was found within five miles of this location versus and and does that then make it vernacular because we source the materials locally, even though they might have originated on the other side of the planet? Obviously, material is not the only way to get to define a given vernacular. A fun fact, there actually are birds that make their houses out of trash. There's a some type of bower bird. I love bower birds. Yeah. Oh, you're speaking my language. Yeah. They're the coolest bird ever. <laughs> <laughs> really sure. you should look it up yeah they make little little piles <laughs> they're and it's, the architects of birds <laughs> yeah <laughs> organizers yeah. Yeah. yeah organizers and builders it's all about sure. like trying to impress with your obsessive construction of your dwelling unit i used to really be into um <laughs> when i would when i would work construction i would work construction you know in texas or alabama or mississippi or california or something like that and i used to be really into how uh, workers would refer to the same tool by different names. It's mm -hmm. so like, for example, like uh, a sledgehammer might be a sledgehammer in one state and a double jack in another oh. state. Or uh, a pickaxe a pick would be uh, uh, the same thing as a mattock. Never heard of a mattock. Yeah. I guess we could they're figure not, out like where I'm from based on the weather. They're not exactly the same thing, but <laughs> the words are used more or less interchangeably depending on which state you're in. I used to really be into stuff like that. It's funny, in terms of architectural history, there was a lot of focus on the skill level of the people uh, making the structures as being one of the biggest qualifiers to be vernacular. And when I was doing a little bit of research, apparently early architects, if they were creating or designing the structure, regardless of the skill, it became non-vernacular. But if if uns well, whatever historians define as unskilled labor was doing it, it was vernacular regardless. And right. so what, what fascinates me about the tree houses you work on is there's this sort of moving definition of vernacular is based on this popular notion that might be something that's a little fluid of what is vernacular. 
Because it's just so hugely broad. It's so yeah. broad. It's so huge. It's like everybody can agree that if an architect is involved generally, historically, yeah. that it's not. Yet, I, it's hard to argue any treehouse you've designed isn't. But I could argue that vernacular can be done with an architect. You can design buildings that that belong within the greater framework of the vernacular of, of a certain region. LA would be a good example of like, you know, when you think LA vernacular, you think like white stucco. I mean, that's not something that you don't mind stucco somewhere, you know, it's not coming out of the ground. <laughs> you have like, been to the great stucco mines? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but that that's a very contrived vernacular, but it really works climatically too, which is obviously another huge component of vernacular. I mean, it's not just the materials, but it's it's the it's the skill of the labor, it's the climatic concerns, it's, it's all kinds of different stuff. And they're all interesting. They all kind of work together. That's why it can be so broad and hard to define sometimes because like big overhangs, like the, you know, the end all be all, like, is that a prerequisite for being quote Seattle vernacular? Well, it's, it's funny. I'm beginning to feel like Seattle might have a special claim to vernacular, maybe other, or the Pacific Northwest. I'm going to make it broader than that. Uh, we had a show a while ago when we first started it that was about the art community in Seattle and how craft space it was and how craft has a special place in this city more than many others, even very arts conscious cities. And maybe that there were so many homes here that were kit homes hmm. that were, sure, designed and engineered by an architect, but thrown together by the person that would be living there. And then an entire generation built a portion of this city in that way. And that there's a romanticism that remains around that. Uh, and originally, the conversation started as, why are people so obsessed with mid-century here? And once we started peeling it <laughs> peeling it away, it wasn't so much the aesthetic of mid-century, but maybe it was that handmade connection to it. And maybe there's that there's like a special middle ground here for what is vernacular. I, mean, I think we could argue about the definition of vernacular, you know, for hours and for hours and hours and hours. I feel like we could argue about it. Like, I think that I could defend various different perspectives of it that would be in conflict with each other if we needed to. But um, you guys booked me for the whole night, so I'm here. Yeah. OK, so you're ready. <laughs> but I think that there's like maybe just one of those small facets of this idea of, of what is vernacular has to do with what is the cultural zeitgeist of the time that you're doing it. And and, and then a misinterpretation of that. So I'm, what's coming to my mind right now is, I you know, I used to I lived in Walla Walla for a number of years a while ago. And big wine country, and so then it was just always these people were like, "Oh, we're gonna we're gonna come in and we're gonna build a winery, and oh, because it's wine, it's gonna look like an Italian villa." Mm. And, and I was just like, "No, no, no! Like the the vernacular of the Walla Walla Valley is not Italian villas, but there is some the actual, beautiful mm -hmm. vernacular architecture in that area, and it's all agriculture, you know, old barns, like some of the most beautiful old barns I've seen." Like, I mean, you can't think about Seattle vernacular without thinking about like a Haida house, right? Or a, yeah. or a totem pole or something I mean, like that. We have, and because this region is so rich in resources, we actually do have much more permanent architecture from way back when than a lot of areas that had more of a um, nomadic, you know, nomadic architecture, sure. structures that were portable. Some climates just actually don't lend themselves historically well to permanent structures. Yeah. So it's harder to define <laughs> And harder to do. Uh, in general, we can't we can't go outside and build a shed in our backyard. Not not legally. Oh, oh, I was gonna say I can't. What do you mean? Uh, no, we can't. I mean, you, no, physically you can, but like there are there are so like you will you'll get a phone call and you will get stopped. Like a, you know, if you have a bunch of land 
uh, maybe where where you grew up in Alabama or heck even where I grew up in Pennsylvania, you could you could just go back there and build a shed and nobody was going to stop you. So this is like, like there was that, versus zoning. There was an inherent right for you to do it. It's not something that's talked about straight out, but somewhere along the line that became virtually impot depending on where you live in the city, virtually impossible to do. Well, we decided that we are a city and we have laws and that there is a reason that we have zoning codes. True. <laughs> so can I confess something to you guys since we're talking about Seattle's look and feel and vernacular and all that? I have this this like it's not quite a fantasy, but it's like a, a, a future vision. That I, I swear that Seattle's going to like be almost defined like it's defined by the space. Thing, right? You're going to like think about Seattle and you're going to think of like townhouses and accessory dwelling units that's what i think is going to happen and it's all going to be like you know hardy panel with like little strips of cedar or something like that i swear to you let the record state daniel ash says i mean like yes we're architects we have power to do this i don't i think the movement's too big to stop at this point i think it's i think it's unstoppable i think it's just gonna happen i think it's a it's a it's a market force talk about another you know definer of vernacular i think there's so much you know single family zoning in this city and i think there's so many there's so much space for these accessory dwelling units there's so much potential and you know like not just um spatial potential but like earnings potential for people to like make these townhomes it's just and we need the density it's just there's it it's got a lot of things working for it there's a lot of people doing it mm-hmm. there's it seems like it's getting easier and easier legally to do these in more and more areas it's I think that that could be what most no, of our think, city looks like. I think you are onto something because every boom results in a bunch of quickly built, not necessarily well built, but ubiquitous and prolific one or two types yeah. that end up everywhere. And so that's how the mid-century modern thing became so popular here. Not all of these are gems that people are romanticizing about here. Um, and now we're in another boom. It's just like that. And it's these little sliver townhomes. And you might you might be right. Like 50 years from now, people are being like, oh, I just missed the town, the hardy panel townhomes. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> and they'll just be like waxing poetic about them. I'm That's so, fascinating. I'm so tickled by the idea of university, you know, like architecture professors at the university just being like, oh, you know, the vernacular it had uh, it responded to market pressures. <laughs> <laughs> but therein lies a good question. It's hard to argue that the definition of vernacular doesn't shift over time. You have to wonder in the future where it will end up. And maybe having an architect or a skilled builder involved wouldn't be a barrier to that in the future. And now I think the popular conception would be, no, that's a, that's a stretch. Well, so do you have you know, if if you are a skilled enough designer, can you create the vernacular through design, or does the vernacular only exist, you know, at the at the hand of of, of just the the general the general population? Can you mimic vernacular architecture so well that it is in fact vernacular? Oh, Daniel, you gotta take this one. This is not a good answer to your question, <laughs> but it reminds me of something that comes to mind often, and because you're right, it's not always designers that have such an impact on you know, architecture, vernacular, or something like that. I feel like James Cameron had more of an impact on on architecture than most architects ever will. Like that stupid scene where, you know, Jack and Rose are on the front of that Titanic. Nobody, nobody will ever be able to look at a triangular balcony the same way ever again. It changes the way you think about them, changes the way you act on them. 
that's not a perfect answer, but I think what I'm saying is that as a designer, can you influence it? Yes, but so can everybody else. You know, vernacular is a really big movement by definition. It's like a common consensus, a general consensus. It's cultural, it's it's economic, it's everything. And it's, you know, all of those things align in certain areas to sort of create a, a really maybe iconic, maybe well-defined. It's it's a it's a spirit of a given place, right? And little one-offs, they always add to the conversation. Sometimes, you know, really hard to think about LA without thinking of the Getty Center. It's hard to think about Seattle without thinking of the Space Needle. It's hard to think about New York without thinking of Rockefeller Plaza. You know, there's obviously really big commissions that become iconic and matter a lot and become indicative of a given area. But it's it's very rare for them to just be one-offs. They're usually part of a larger conversation. So how do you incorporate the idea of scale into this? If vernacular is influenced by like the public opinion of, of acceptance of, 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 of this is ours, this is ours, this is in our city and we, and we belong to this, it, is, it, is it in fact that the vernacular is defined by that public acceptance of ownership of it or it, in which could be have, which could have been created by one person who was so good at, at just sensing the feel of a, of a location and creating this thing that then the, the, the population took ownership of, or on the other side of the coin, is it that a whole population together ended up kind of moving into creating you know a, a built environment that, that felt like them and so then they, they have ownership of it because they did it. I think there's vernacular is the, the ownership of the population of a built either environment or built structure. I've read about that phenomenon in India and a couple other countries that have had huge building projects that have been abandoned and then those buildings get inhabited and used in a different way, which is also referred right. as a type of vernacular. Yes. Um, and I saw that actually leads me to wonder, is it a sequence of economic boom versus economic depression? Creates half-finished or poorly finished, quickly finished, structures in some prolific manner, and then they're abandoned, and the natural state is to repurpose them in some way. But they're repurposed by people who are staking their claim on them. Like it, it, and, and I think the case you're thinking about, I forget what it is, but um, we we talked about it at a night school many months ago. The one in Venezuela? Never yeah. Really it's the example that everybody's yeah. always th- talking and, about. And yeah. it, it turned into a whole society in this structure that so then you have a you have a case of somebody who was some you know developer who whoever it was that commissioned this building that probably wasn't being very cognizant of but about what the community needed necessarily and then mm-hmm. and then that turned out to not be completed mm-hmm. but then it was taken back and now the ownership is very much in the hands of the people that this is their home this is their whole society it's an organ it's a living organism of people it's a whole civilization that has its own. Currently imagining that Seagram, like what the Seagram's building would have looked like if it was yeah. like not finished and inhabited like by a bunch of, you know, I mean, less if you were to, if you were to swoop in there and, and say, no, you're not allowed to, you know, this is not your building anymore. That wouldn't, that wouldn't fly, right? It's just so become an ingrained part of that particular community. You think there are any downsides or challenges to vernacular architecture? It seems like this romantic thing that anybody could pick up a hammer and some found objects or anything and hammer something together. Uh, what are the, what's the other side of the coin? It's a good question. Um, the other side of the coin is that, I mean, sometimes, you know, let's say you have a, an idea of 
what a given place looks like. And most of it looks like, let's say we rewind the clock back. I don't know, I don't know the city of this. I don't know the history of the city well enough to probably get this right, but let's say you were on the clock back uh, in Seattle, thirty years or something like that, and we're like, and you want to just like create a whole new community, like like a big development community, like maybe let's say, like, what's is it? I think one of the biggest challenges is that like sometimes there's developments that are so big over such a large area that they're kind of basically coming up with everything at the exact same time. And it's gonna matter. Like whatever they do is gonna matter. How they do it, like how much of it there is, it, it's definitely gonna matter. And if it's big enough, it's gonna influence the vernacular a lot. And it's not always in the way that you think it should be. It's almost never in the way you think it should be, right? Obviously it influences the vernacular and the, the spirit of the whole area in general. It's not a problem, but it's a it's a risk. And it's I feel I feel like it's something you you always wish that people who organize developments like that would take in a greater account. Or that you have a responsibility to yeah. to how much you're going to influence yeah, and like I, you know, even as if I were a developer, I don't know how I would even begin to address something like that. You know, you think about all those, especially out here on the West Coast. Like, you know, there's there's whole towns that went up. You know, post World War II. You know, people coming back from the war, and then you know, there's you know, we're building new factories. You know, this Cold War, and we just got to put up whole cities. You know, in a month or something like that, and they just did you know, kit homes from horizon to horizon. And, you know, you can obviously still see plenty of remnants of that out here on the West Coast, um, probably all across the country, but I know a little bit better around here and where some of them are and all that. So, you know, is it fair to judge those communities based on what all like every single one of their houses look like? I'm not sure it is, but we kind of do anyway. It's almost inevitable. That's a problem. Not everybody's so intentional about vernacular, but it all matters. And so you can't always read as much into it as you want to. Yeah, it's, it seems like it's almost impossible to know what that consequence is going to be. Because we have design reviews here, but they're kind of scattershot. And sure. it's like no one really yeah. knows what. It's like, oh, use, use nice materials, please. And that's about, you know. Minimizing ugliness counts for a lot. It really does. <laughs> but today's ugliness, I mean, sure. that's an unintended consequence, too. Well, you can't necessarily know at the time that you're creating it whether or not what you are making is going to be a thing that becomes a, 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 you know, a notated moment in, in the history of architecture. We all might hope that we're going to create something, that everything that we do is so amazing that it's going to go down and people are going to be talking about it later. But of course, that's just not the case. Yeah, so, so like a front porch versus a foyer. A front porch evolved specially in the United States and became something iconic that everyone almost aspires to, regardless of geographic location in the country. Everybody has a use for a front porch and wants a big one. Nobody's like, ah, screw the front porch. Okay, right. But the front foyer was something very much of a time when people entertained and needed a space for people to arrive and leave. And then the culture shifted and it disappeared. That's a good point. Very little porches in the city. Yeah. I never even thought about it. Front porches. Very little front porches. Oh, yeah. Like the front, we, you know, the house I grew up in, we have, we do have a front, um, little, little tiny little front porch thing. And in, in fact, it was smaller when my parents originally bought the house and they expanded it just enough so that there could be a table so that you could eat a little meal out there. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's still not like when you think of a front porch, when you think yeah. of a porch in, in like Southern architecture and things like that, it's not remotely like that. Mm -hmm. The the places in that house that you hang out on are not on the front. It's mm -hmm. it's all once you pass through that threshold of, oh, now you're in. Well, so it's interesting 
bringing that full circle back to tree houses is a place where you can feel even more private in your private hidden backyard. It's like, it's like a shelter within a, within a shelter. Our sweet spot is 12 to 15 feet above the ground, which actually doesn't sound like a lot, but when you're 15 feet above the ground, it actually feels like a lot. Um, floating structure essentially. It has to do with tree movement. You know, that kind of depends on what species you're building in and how, how big the trees are whole bunch of different stuff but our tree houses are rarely like in the public realm so even though you might have a really great view it's not like people it's are going to come wandering up it's, it's on 500 acres on this some it's grand piece of property that you wouldn't even believe you guys wouldn't believe i i argue that lots and lots of our profession capital a architecture is derived from some notion of escapism mine is a really pure happens to be a really pure version of that because um, it's coming from a very direct place and it's for a very direct purpose. But I think lots of architectures are really kind of an idealized for version of some nostalgic sense of whatever it is you want to be. So do you find that when in, in your field, if, if you're going to be in a treehouse, does that change that uh, the way that you have to look at that balance of prospect and refuge if all the, if, if you have to start from the point of, well, we're 15 feet up in a tree? Depends on the job. I'm a very open person, so I tend to be a little bit more, a little bit less private. Like I, I navigate towards like, I love an outdoor shower, you know, that's like what I like, you know, with a view or something. They're not always like that, you know, but you can, let's say it's like the space is being, like my projects being what they are, it's really easy to create either one. We're talking about spaces that are 20 square feet, you know, 40 square feet or something like that. Really small spaces, at least in a, you know, for a certain part of a treehouse. Our treehouse tend to be like two to 400 square feet. It's the median. Um, we're talking about very small spaces and it's because they're kind of, it's more about the tree and the forest than the architecture itself in a lot of sense. And so it can be easier to get a variety of experiences just because of the scale of, of things. It's just like there's, one little piece that's inside and it's like right around this tree maybe and it's between a couple of walls and it's it's tight but then like you immediately have this release of it's easy to get the release you just go outside on the deck and it's just like all of a sudden you're in a forest you don't need you know a great big park in front of you or something like that so knowing what you do with with this field of architecture would you you live in Old Ballard now. Would, would you wish that you lived in a treehouse somewhere? Or is a treehouse your idea of uh, an, ex an escape from the urban core of the city that you live in? Some days I want to. To be honest, I'm, I'm private life. I tend to be more of an urban guy. Um, I, I need to have close access to the outdoors and stuff like that. But I've never had a really strong desire to live in a treehouse myself. You know, nobody else that I work with ever really lives in a treehouse. It's actually pretty rare for somebody to live full-time in a treehouse. We do them sometimes. I'm working on one right now. It's going to be a full-time residence, mm -hmm. but those are rare. We're talking one in 40 projects or something like that. Mm -hmm. Usually they're more like guest houses and escape pods and things like that, writing studios. Once in a while, like somebody will you know, build one for their kid, but it's an, it's an awful lot of money to invest in like a, a child's play structure that they're going to outgrow mm -hmm. in a matter of years for the most part they're like mother-in-law suites and airbnb type facilities not that they rent them but it's that kind of a program 
Thank you so much for coming in, Daniel. I really, really appreciate it. This is a ton of fun. It's been an honor, you guys. Thanks. So again, thanks again, Daniel. Our next night school event will be right around the corner, so keep a lookout on our website for that. It'll be held here at Board of Mellon on 15th Avenue in Capitol Hill. And as always, please stop on by anytime and chat with us. We'd love to have you. Thank you again, and we will see you all in a few weeks. Bye.